0: welcome to part two of episode number 44 of the fiduciary you podcast where i had the chance to interview john faustino who's the head of fi 360 a broadridge company i hope you enjoy it no that's that's great and where where do you see you know you you have you've got esg now right with with you know, some of the recent guidance you've got guaranteed income where do you see whether both at, at fi three hundred and sixty or in general, w- what do you think the next evolution of tools are to kind of address those type of uh, those type of areas? Um, you know, it, it, in in some ways, kind of the the old tools, you know, may or may not be sufficient to help advisors now that that need to help their clients um, do a deeper level of, of due diligence. How do you think about? um how do you think about that and sure. and how does fi 360 think about you know where you're going to kind of meet the needs of of advisors and their clients in that area that's
1: uh, yeah great great softball question for me I appreciate that one and maybe I'm going to go in reverse order and I'm
0: gonna I'm, start teeing, you, I'm teeing you up John
1: I'm I'm teeing you up thank you so with regards to ESG we actually won a wealthies award from wealthmanagement.com this last September for our integration of ESG factors, along with our fiduciary score in our in the Fi three hundred and sixty toolkit, investments greener. <clears throat> if you if you look at the Department of Labor rule, which uh, just came out a, a week or two ago, they're they're basically saying you can use ESG in four hundred and one k plans if you want, in retirement plans if you want. Um, you don't have to, but you need to address all of the fiduciary requirements first and foremost. And some of the objections that we've that we've seen to that rule um, that have come out, I think, are still kind of along those same lines. It's like, hey, make sure that you take care of the fiduciary considerations first. Some of these these rules are not necessarily precluding you from using ESG. Some are, but but not all. Um, and that's where I think um, the partnership we have with Owl Analytics is really neat. They're an ESG factor identification and scoring firm, and this concept of identifying good fiduciary funds and then your ESG criteria separately and looking at maybe the Venn diagram intersection is something that I think is powerful Um, wealthmanagement.com agreed or that that selection committee agreed Um, I think where those tools are going to go for us anyway is that we're going to add more information on reports and more data points right now we've got high-level four high-level ESG data points we allow people to search on, and that's kind of it. So I think integrating that into reports, allowing for the more granular data points associated with ESG um, are is something that's going to come next for us. And that really aligns with that personalization trend that we're seeing in the industry, where um, if, you, if you personalize a portfolio for someone, they're a lot more likely to stick with it. So even if you don't believe in any investment benefits if you're at least neutral um from a from an investment benefit kind of explicitly with with esg factors there's a personalization benefit there's a behavioral benefit that i see by using esg um to to get people kind of more aligned with their holdings to get them thinking more long term we know that one of the greatest benefits that you get working with a financial advisor is they help you not sell when things are low and and not buy when things are high. Um, and I think some of this personalization can help with that. So that's that's where we're going on the on the ESG front.
0: So you know one of the things that I hear from advisors is, and, and with a lot of things, there's a lot of as an industry we get excited about, there's a lot of kind of sizzle. Um, a lot of times there isn't at least right away much stake behind it. It takes time. Four trends. I mean, I use like 330A as an example. Well, people have been talking about 338. I talked about it in my book in 2008, Fixing the 401k. You know, it took a long time for that to really get kind of embraced at the at the client level. Now it's much more common, um, but you know, it's been 15, 17 years. It's been an evolution. I think it's the same way ESG, from what I'm hearing from advisors, is it may come up as a discussion point with clients, but there hasn't been a huge embrace of it so far. Um, certainly you have some types of companies where it is a really big focus. Um, and so I think it, it it probably will take time to um, to work its way in. I think it's the same way from a, a guaranteed income standpoint. I think regulatory guidance is really helpful for um just kind of drawing the the lines in the sand and helping people understand like you know what's in bounds and what's out of bounds but you know I and and I'd love to get your thoughts I think with this with this and whatnot is really interesting I think guaranteed income we're still in the very early innings just like ESG but I think the very early innings you know the first or second inning um, might even still be in spring training when it comes to kind of adoption of guaranteed uh, income and ESG strategies Um, that's just kind of what, kind of what I'm hearing. And so I think for advisors, the learning point is one needing to have tools, um, to do that type of analysis, more importantly, they'll have those conversations with clients. Um, you want to be the first one to have a conversation with a client. You want them to hear it from you. You don't want them to hear it from, you know, one of your competitors. So even if the decision is, Hey, we're going to hold off for the time being. You should be having those conversations with clients and you know having tools you know like from an fi 360 or other technology providers that can enable you to, to facilitate those conversations even if the decision is hey we're going to hold tight for a while i think is uh, is really really important but i think from a learning perspective or the takeaway is you want to be proactive about having those conversations with your clients um and these new trends and and guidance and best practices um uh, not having them hear it from somebody else. Um, so I guess that would be my kind of overall perspective.
1: Yeah, no, I, I think those are great points. And I think, you know, you, you talk about technology being an investment, not an expense. Um, and I think about that with training as well, too. So the time that you spend watching a webinar, listening to your podcast, those are investments. Um, and everyone's time, I mean, that's, that's the most valuable thing right. that we have. The older I get, right. that, that certainly resonates even more with me. And, and I agree with you. I think one of the big challenges with uptake, with if we take ESG specifically, is that I mentioned I see a lot of the benefits. I hear about a lot of the benefits associated with that personalization. So if you're talking about this in the context of retirement plans, and we certainly help advisors with wealth accounts and foundations and endowments, it's not just 401k plans. But what you're trying to do is you're trying to put something in there that will resonate with a thousand participants. Um, and perhaps you know you've got an affinity towards social issues, and I've got an affinity towards environmental issues. So, how do you scale that personalization within a plan with, with ESG? So we've had some conversations with folks on that. I think that's a that's a real challenge. Um, it's it's not necessarily you know one one size fits all with, with ESG. So I do think it's gonna take a while for that to evolve. And i think you should think uh, about being proportional with the opportunity or the need in the investment that you make in tools and in training on those things specifically you're you're a long-standing aif and i'm very appreciative for that Um, and i think you know that all of the webinars that we do are made available for free to anyone we we often have webinars on on esg and we have actually a ton on retirement income so we started that retirement income consortium At the beginning of this year with a lot of like-minded industry professionals that want to do the right thing for participants they you know you saw in the secure act of of 2019 there was um, some some help with the safe harbor for the selection of an annuity provider which is one of the challenges or concerns advisors had with with recommending retirement income and then there was guidance at the end of 2021 from the department of labor where they said increased access to retirement income within plans is one of our top goals for 2022 so the regulators uh you know very clearly signaling hey this is something that we want you industry folks to figure out and then on top of that if you look at um, pte 2022, the ira rollover regulation that went into effect on july 1st of this year Regulators are are wanting to be really careful now, um, holding more advisors, more actions to a fiduciary standard of care when you're doing a rollover. So I think there is this very clear messaging from regulators that we've got a we've got an issue with people outliving their retirement savings. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's something we want you to figure out, and we're we're seeing some good traction now with uh, record keepers, for example seeing opportunity from advisors there's there's more um more being asked about retirement income solutions we're seeing innovation with new products coming out that have better portability characteristics and the like but there still is a long way to go so i I agree with you it's it's early innings but we're seeing some good progress being made i'm going to speak to um several uh, very accomplished advisors at the end of next week um on what their specific needs are but that's what you know, FI 360 is trying to help the industry um, and developing tools, actually, for retirement income consideration as well, too. We've got prudent practices that we're developing with the consortium, and we will be developing a tool that helps you select a retirement income solution, just like you select a target date fund or a large gap growth fund. Um, and that should be live by the end of
0: 2023. Okay. Yeah, you, you, I think you bring up a, you know, I think you bring up a really good point around, you um, just product needing to and solutions needing to catch up um and, and, and you know getting back is like guaranteed income as an example um definitely a focus i think a lot of a lot of progress and i anticipate there's going to be you know uh meaningful adoption down the road but there needs to be that that you know it's it it is a very good point um i even think about like pension protection act of 2006 right that's when Congress basically said, "Hey, we want to green light auto enrollment and auto escalation, right? And default investing with QDIA's and whatnot." And that, you know, that that took time to get implemented. You know, we saw it, and it 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 you know now there's a ton of momentum behind it. Um, that was less product focused, though. I guess you could say from a target date fund um, that really kind of opened the doors um to proliferation of of target date product, um but I think that's a really good point is now with regulatory guidance and with really the bigger players in the industry starting to get behind I think ESG is an example I think what you could see is managed accounts actually could really help from a personalization standpoint it's hard to get a target date fund you know it's going to be, you know, it's kind of a one size fits none. I mean, you're going to hit a lot of the population, but managed accounts really can drive that personalization. That's potentially where firms will start to build in. Maybe you have like an ESG model um, or managed account and a non ESG, and depending upon the needs of the participant and what's important to them, they can uh, they can kind of select into into what that looks like. So, where do you see agree. the? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry, think- go ahead. No,
1: go go please.
0: No, no, I, I I I was done. I was gonna gonna shift, but what are your thoughts there in terms of it? It, it sounds like building on that personalization, where you think kind of the future is.
1: Well, I, I love that. Yeah, on, on the ESG front, to your point, I think managed accounts. I think not only just like an ESG and a non ESG managed account, I could see folks launching a, a socially focused managed account, an environmental, um, a governance focused managed account, and and non, you know, ESG options as well too. So maybe you have four. So I think there's ways you can you can try to get a little bit more personalization and still have something that's scalable to the masses. So I think that's spot on. And I think that you're um, I'm extremely aligned with you with your reference to the Pension Protection Act and what that did for adoption of target date funds and what we need to do with retirement income solutions. I think associating those solutions with a default solution, whether it's a QDIA or not, um, but somehow defaulting folks, I think, is required. It was, you know, really smart behavioral economists, uh, Dick Thaler and um, Shlomo Bonazzi that that worked on that that aspect of auto enrollment with um, with the Pension Protection Act. And as, as much as I, I love to think that we can we can educate plan participants, I think the you know the most pragmatic way to get them where they should be is to default them into. Certain solutions, um, and that's and that's the real challenge now. It's not necessarily getting these retirement income solutions in the plans. It's getting everyone to sign up for them.
0: Yeah, I I, I completely agree that it has to be kind of that. You know, you even see that now with target date funds. When target date funds, you know, are the default, you see it around managed accounts. Like when something is the default, it gets a lot of flow. When it's just added as an option, it it utilization is is much much lower. Um, and I, I do probably think target date, and this is where we talked about Matt, you know, one wits and whatnot, what they're doing with income America. I think building it in as part of kind of like a target date fund um, is, is probably a good strategy because you're going to get, you're going to get flow that way. If you just leave it as kind of a, a standalone, I think it's going to be really, really hard. So where do you see the future of fiduciary going, um, uh, you know, over the next five or 10 years. That's something I admire tremendously about you is your commitment to fiduciary principles. Where do you think that's going over the next five to 10 years? And what do advisors really need to do to kind of uh, get ahead of the curve from that perspective?
1: Sure. Um, and, and I'll say at the at the end of 2021, for the first time, there were more fee-based advisors and hybrid advisors than there were commissioned advisors. So this fiduciary trend is, is real. And we we have kind of flipped, um, we we flipped over to a more fiduciary centric world um, as of as of last December. Um, And I see no signs of that slowing down. One of the things that's interesting during the Trump administration, when you saw um, some pushback, maybe at the federal level, with some of these fiduciary regulations, you saw a lot of states say, hey, if you're not going to do this at the federal level, we're going to do it at the state level. So I believe if you are a fiduciary advisor um, you're you're on the right side of the trend, but more importantly, you're on the you're on the right side of your clients. Um, so I think I think we're going to continue in the same manner that we've seen over the last several years. And it's interesting that we've we saw a great increase in our AIF designees and interest in our in our fiduciary training, even after the DOL rule was vacated in May of 2018. And I think there's this realization that you know it's inevitable; it's the right thing to do. If your doctor does the right thing for you, has to do the right thing for you, um, your lawyer, your accountant, you know, why not? Why not your financial advisor? Um, so I think we're going to we're going to continue along and see probably more regulation um, and just more more activities that push us toward uh, towards a, a more unified fiduciary standard.
0: Yeah, I, c- I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, at, at, at the end of the day, um, you know, if you you. Uh, always stay kind of focused on doing the right thing for people. It's a better way to live. Um, but it also has a lot of benefits. I think, you know, from a business, I think from a business perspective. And, uh, I think that that to to that point, um, and I, I, love kind of hearing that statistic around, um, and you get a lot of people that argue around commission or fee or what that, that looks like. I mean, when you can eliminate conflicts of interest and create, um, maybe not perfect alignment but greater alignment with clients ultimately I think that bot business model uh, wins out and you know I've just always admired you as as I think an advocate of fiduciary principles and and really fi 360 um, uh, being kind of ahead of the curve and waving that that uh, waving that flag um, if I think about the industry and and you know my 20 plus years in it you know I think about on probably the, the the NAPFA, the National Association of Personal Financial Advisors back in the day, kind of the fee-only organization. Um, and I think about FI360, I would argue that that um, your two organizations have probably done more within the industry for advancing fiduciary practices and principles um, than anybody else. So um, just a ton of admiration for you from that perspective. So. Um, John, this has been a really fun discussion. Um, one of the things I tend to like at the, to to ask at the end of a episode is, um, to ask guests what their single most important piece of advice would be for, uh, for advisors. So I'll kind of like pass the ball to you and, uh, would love to get kind of your thoughts on your single best piece of advice.
1: Well, um, I'd say, you know, do do the right thing, and you know I've got so much admiration for the financial advising community. Um, I, I guess maybe one one thing that I would say that's maybe a little bit um, unique is um, please please engage, please engage your your vendors, your software vendors, your training vendors. Um, there's a lot of admiration for what financial advisors do from a lot of us that work in the in the industry. And a lot of the ideas that we get for new offerings and advancements come from individual advisors. Um, so I'm, I'm very grateful for the relationships that I've got with um, with more than a handful of advisors who reach out to me on a regular basis and and give me really good constructive criticism. Um, so I'm I'm appreciative for that engagement and um, appreciative for what they do to help people, you know, live live better lives financially. It's a it's a really important job that they have it's a, it's a very needed job. Um, and it's, it's one that I'm, that I'm happy to support.
0: I think that is, I think that's, that's great advice too, is, is even, um, you know, thinking about vendor relationships on the technology side is, don't think about as if you're an advisor, think about, your technology providers as partners, not vendors. In the same way that you don't want to be a vendor to your clients, you want to be a partner. Think about that same thing, and you know, to kind of echo what what John's saying, um, and, and even from my perspective now, is you've got technology partners. At the end of the day, we want to build things that you value and you want. So, I think that's awesome feedback, John. That that uh, uh, an awesome insight, just in terms of um, help the people who want to support you. If you're an advisor, um, give them the feedback and the guidance so that they can, you know, they can create the things that are going to help you help your clients and, and help you build better practices. So, um, John, this has been a lot of fun, um, and, uh, really, really good insights. You know, I've, I've had a, uh, a longstanding history with, with FI 360 and, um, have appreciated our friendship. And I just, uh, Uh, wish you continued success and and really uh uh encourage you to to keep up the good fight and uh wave that banner for fiduciary practices and principles that um uh that you're doing so thank you so much for coming on and and uh and being a guest
1: thank you thank you for having me and 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 right back at you josh i've got great respect for you uh professionally um personally and, and you're someone who's really carried that fiduciary banner um, kind of on their own. And I've got a lot of respect for you doing it um, individually. You know, I walked into a situation, FI360 is up and running and built, um, and I came there. But great respect for what you've done individually for for all your peers in the industry.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode with John Faustino from FI360. I hope that you enjoyed the episode. If you'd like more information or to learn more, go to fiduciaryworks.com slash podcast. And while you're there, make sure to sign up for a demo of Fiduciary Rx, my tech platform that helps retirement plan advisors diagnose, prescribe, and improve fiduciary wellness and to create scalability and consistency and lift for their practices. Uh, you can sign up for a demo right on the site. And if you've got questions you'd like me to answer, topics you'd like me to discuss, guests you think would be a good fit for the show or any other feedback, I'd love to hear from you. And also head over to Amazon and check out my two books, The Fiduciary Formula and Fixing the 401k. And if you want an easy way to support the show, I'd really appreciate you leaving a review on Apple Podcast. It's the best way to help other people find the show and I read each one. Until next time, thanks again for listening to The Fiduciary U Podcast.